6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. Entropy laws were initiated in Genesis 3. They're part of the curse. But that's, we draw that that inference from Romans 8, but that's Another story. Let's go on here. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And by the way, this is kind of an interesting sentence because it refutes Calvinism. Okay? Not willing that any should perish. That refutes Calvinism. It says that Christ died just for those that were saved. No, God is not willing that any should perish. The great tragedy is that after the entire panorama of, of redemption that we study, God doesn't get what he wants. After all the pain and suffering, the, the whole program, when the smoke clears, God doesn't get what he wants. He didn't get what he wants out of this deal. Why? Because not all will repent. He would prefer all to repent, but he won't violate their sovereignty. And so some will not, some will perish. God's not willing that any should perish. He would prefer all to all repent. But not all will, we know. By the way, time itself is our most inelastic resource. On Wall Street, they used to say, if money is your biggest problem, you're in great shape. Because you can always get more money. There's always another deal. New day, new deal. So that's not, that's not the critical resource. Critical resource is your health and or your time. That's limited. You can't add to that. That's what an economist would call an inelastic resource. An elastic resource is one that will respond to price. Oil is elastic, you know. If the price goes up, there's more of it because it makes it more feasible to get it and so forth. So butter, if butter's cheap, butter's, it, it, the amount of butter will function what the price of it is, so forth. That's what they mean by the, the uh, supply being elastic. Time is inelastic. You cannot add new time. There's, it is perishable. Nothing's more gone than last, the hour last, you know, or the yesterday, last week. That's gone. And uh, so it's, it, that's what they mean by time is inelastic. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days. Or I put it more precisely, number our nanoseconds, right? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, this is a phrase we want to talk about a little bit. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Thief in the night. Let's talk about that a minute. That's a term from Paul's epistle. And he says a lot about that. It's amazing to me how many don't understand what he means by that. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul writing. 
For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. There is an ellipsis here. To whom is the thief in the night? He'll explain that. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Who will not escape? Those to whom they comes as a thief in the night. He goes on here. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. Ye are not of the night nor of darkness. What's his point? He implies, as you understand what he's saying up here, let's go read it again. For, yours, you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. To them who are in darkness is his point. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you. See the contrast he's implying here. It's very clear if you just take the whole passage. That they should overtake you. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. Ye are not of the night or of darkness. He continues here. You see the difference. The thief of the night up here is in contrast to those that uh, ye are not of the night or uh, of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken, are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet and uh, the hope of salvation. Now, when you digest 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll discover something very bizarre. That the believer will not be caught by surprise. Doesn't know the time and the hour, don't misunderstand me. But the believer will, be in a, will not be surprised. He'll be in an expectation. that it, it, it's, He's not caught like a thief in the night, is the point. That's to the unbeliever. That's, the, that's to the unbeliever. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Earth also, the works then, that are therein shall be burned up. The day of the Lord. Now that's a phrase that's all through the Scripture. What is the day of the Lord? In the first chapter of the book of Revelation, there's a verse often misunderstood. Paul says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Does he mean Sunday? No, he doesn't mean Sunday. That's a Western concept. He was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. Paul, uh, excuse me, John was transported through time and granted this view of the day of the Lord. And... Uh, the day of the Lord shall come. And it's a thief of the night to those who are in darkness, as we've just seen. And we're going to see that what, Paul's, what uh, Peter's going to talk about here, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. That's what Isaiah 65, 17 talks about. The day of the Lord shall come as a thief of the night, in the which, uh-huh. Uh, now, the day of the Lord started long ago. It's actually started. But it's going to include, of course, this whole thing of the seventh week. In fact, it even includes the millennium. It doesn't finish until we have a new heavens and a new earth, the, the day of the Lord. Closes at the end of the millennium when the destruction of the heavens of the earth in, in Revelation 20 and 21, and I'll add Isaiah 65, take place. Heavens shall pass away with a great noise. Very strange term here. This word noise isn't loud. It's a strange Greek word that is really used for the swish of an arrow or the rush of wings, or the splash of water, or the hiss of a serpent. It's a noise that arrests our attention, but not because it's loud. It's a very, very subtle term. 
and the, in which the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Stokia, basic building blocks. And uh, elements uh, is stokia and melt. It actually, the word in the, in the Greek, the luo, means to untie or loose. The elements are unleashed, unloosed. That's why it's interesting to see that Christ is holding him in, all, in, in, in his, uh, he, he holds him in, in uh, consistency. No, they're going to be turned loose. Verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and guidance? The word conversation, of course, is the old English term for what we would call behavior, holy behavior and godliness. Ought ye to be. See, this raises the question, how then shall we live as a result of all? These aren't just intellectual concepts to bandy around over a cup of coffee or something. No, these should be revising our own priorities. How do these realities impact our lives? God does intervene in history, and He is going to do that probably sooner than we realize. Peter continues, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God when, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Looking for and hasting unto the coming. Did you know that you can hasten the, the, the day of God? That, that really bothered me when I first realized that. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Where in the heavens... Uh, being on fire shall be dissolved. That's what we pray for, by the way, when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Most people, many Christians, just from habit taught since childhood, they pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? It's amazing that uh, probably uh, one church in ten uh, has any idea of, uh, that the millennium is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That God, that Jesus is actually going to rule uh, the entire world from Israel, uh, in, uh, you know, rule the entire planet Earth. He's going to set up a kingdom for a thousand years. And it's very detailed. Uh, there's an astonishing amount of detail described about it. So, uh, you and I can help bring in the fullness that Paul talks about in Romans 11.25. Israel's blinded until the fullness of the Gentile be come in. You should be adding to the fullness of the Gentiles. And uh, you can, for all of this, you can get into our Revelation or the Isaiah commentaries. They deal a great deal with this whole period. Peter and I, Revelation and Isaiah, uh, will tell us more about global warming than uh, any materials promoted by Al Gore. He's got the wrong picture here. Elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Mountains melting. We don't think of that, do we? Psalm 46 does. Micah chapter 1 does. And there are a lot of other passages. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wow. New heavens and new earth. Call this world number three, maybe, right? First world, whatever it was, we'll take that as changing at Genesis 3, or certainly at, at uh, Genesis 6, you know, Noah's flood. We're, the world we now have, call it two or three or whatever, there's a new one coming. Totally new. Isaiah 65, 66, Revelation 20 and 21, I'll deal with that. This one, the one that's coming, will have righteousness dwelling in it. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Be diligent. The call for diligence, how this echoes throughout all of Paul's and Peter's epistles. 
This is the third time Peter has mentioned diligence. He mentioned it twice in the first chapter. How then shall we live? And why? Why should we live any differently? Many Christians are confused about that. I'm saved. I've accepted Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saved. So, that's a starting gun, not a finish line. Behavior matters. You can't earn your salvation. Jesus paid for that 100%. You've got your entry ticket to heaven. No problem there. But what about your inheritance that he set aside for those that are faithful? You can run the risk of forfeiting that. That's why Paul was so paranoid about his, his ministry. Lest preaching to others, I and myself might be a castaway, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. What's he afraid of? Losing his salvation? Of course not. He wrote the book on eternal security. It's called Romans chapter 8. Why then, how then should we live? We should live without spot, blameless. Why? So that the Lord will have the pleasure of awarding us that inheritance which he set aside for us if we are obedient, if we are perseverant, if we are overcomers. Seven promises of the overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3, you should be familiar with them. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now this is a very important little verse here that many people don't understand. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Okay, fair enough. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Well, wait a minute. To whom is Peter writing? You can establish from the letters that he's writing the Jewish believers. But he says, Paul wrote, uh, according to the wisdom given him, hath written unto you. So if the epistle to Hebrews is not Paul's epistle, there's one missing. Peter here documents that Paul wrote an epistle to the Hebrews. People miss that point. You can actually, I believe, demonstrate quite clearly, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the epistle of Hebrews is Pauline, is Paul's expression. And we do all of that, we beat that to death in our commentary on Hebrews. I encourage you to take a look at it and come to your own conclusions. But Peter goes on here to even make a more astonishing statement. He says, Paul has had written to you. So this authenticates Paul's authorship of Hebrews, I believe. There are no other Paul's writings to the Jews and which corroborates these eschatological truths. And he does that in Hebrews 12. See, in other words, not only has he written the Hebrews, but who ha Paul has written about these things to the Jews. And he has in the epistle of Hebrews, is the point, okay? As also in all his epistles, Peter talking about Paul here, this is interesting, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and I love this little insert, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Wow, Peter is communicating a great deal here. He admits, first of all, also in all his epistles, Peter apparently had access to Paul's epistles. How could that be? Because they were encouraged to copy and exchange. When he wrote to the Colossians, it was supposed to be handed to Laodicean also, and so on. As also in all his epistles, it fascinates me that Peter could make a statement in which he felt he was aware of Paul's writings, all of them. I think that in itself is fascinating. 
speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to be understood. In other words, Peter sort of acknowledges that he's not sure he gets it all. Paul's a pretty tough read, and indeed he is. Many experts have concluded that Paul was probably one of the greatest minds that ever walked the planet Earth. Some things are hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures. Now, this is a profound statement by Peter because he's putting Paul's writings in the same category as the Old Testament. The term scriptures they used for their scriptures, which, by the way, was the Greek translation of those scriptures called the Septuagint. Three centuries before the Gospel period, the Jewish Old Testament is translated into Greek and because that was what most Jews spoke. It was the commercial language. Many, the, 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 the true Hebrew was uh, really used the same way Catholics use Latin. It was official, but it, many didn't really have comfort with it. So they, that's why they tra- had the entire Jewish scriptures translated into Greek. Three centuries before Christ, and it's the Septuagint, we notice that the quotes in the New Testament from the Old, when someone in the New Testament quotes an Old Testament passage, more often than not, he is quoting from the Greek translation of that. We can tell by the subtle differences. But it's interesting, Peter puts Paul's writings in the same category as he does the Old Testament. Now that has staggering implications. There's, there's, there's no basis for us to... to um, demean in any way Paul's writings. They're clearly inspired and were so regarded by the early church. So, those that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Okay. So, Peter admits that he's tough to understand, but he corroborates Paul's writings in the same category as the scriptures. That's interesting. Moving on. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Wow, that's something we need to be diligent about. We need to realize that we, even though we're saved, can stumble and be led away in, uh, uh, by a lack of steadfastness and, and, in effect, injure our inheritance as a result. Beware lest ye also. No one will ever fail if he keeps his eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Doctrinal error of a serious character is almost invariably connected with some moral failure. Doctrine and morality are linked together. Important to understand. These are not theoretical exercises for theologians. These are practically, uh, a very practical links in our own chain. So we need to exercise what's called due diligence. So we need to exercise the diligence to do the subject. If you're an investor or on Wall Street or an executive, you know what exercising due diligence means. We need to do it about the Word of God also. But here's his final admonition to each of us. But grow in grace. Wow. Did you know you can grow in grace? I thought grace was a gift. Yes, but you can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Grow in grace. Are you growing? Are you, uh, are you a Christian that's had one year experience repeated ten times? Or are you a ten-year Christian that's grown ten years worth? In other words, 
is your spiritual condition today materially better than it was a year ago? Or adding, asking the same question a little differently, will at the end of this year, will your spiritual condition be substantially improved from where it is today? And my, my premise is that it will only if you make an effort to have it so. That that doesn't just happen. It comes from a result of planting the right seeds. And so, let's talk a little bit about grace. Grace is the method of divine dealing in salvation and the believer's life and service. That saved you. Not under the law, but under grace, Romans tells us in Romans 6.14. God ceaselessly works through grace to impart and perfect in Him corresponding graces. And we have plenty of scriptures on that. Grace, therefore, stands connected with service, and there's dozens of passages on that that you can look at at your leisure. It also stands connected with Christian growth, because you grow in grace, and there's all kinds of passages there. And it also gets involved with giving. As you give, you gain more grace. And so those are all concepts that you can dig out from the, dig from the notes and formulate your own study of grace. Probably one of the most important studies you'll make in the New Testament. So how do you, this whole passage has to do with apostasy, how do you prepare against apostasy? Well, one thing you need to do to prepare is to improve your knowledge of the Word of God. And I don't think that just happens. If you're going to grow in your spiritual walk, it's going to include, not limited to, but going to include a systematic study of the Scriptures, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And when you've gone through the whole Bible, you go through it again. The more you go through it, the more you'll gain from each passage passing through. So I encourage you to adopt some systematic approach to the Word of God. Relying on a Sunday morning sermon for that is obviously inadequate. You need to have a systematic study. And, and one of the most fruitful in my 60 years as a Christian, the place I've seen people grow, is in small groups. Groups that are small enough that you can ask questions without embarrassment, small enough that you hold each other accountable in a certain sense, but in the, not just meeting together, but studying the Word of God. Typically weekly, during the week sometime, um, Businessman in a breakfast meeting before the, the day starts, or more, more commonly in a neighborhood Bible study in the evening, but during the week. Celebrate your Christianity on your day of worship with your fellowship. Don't, don't abandon the gathering together of, the, of the, the total body. That's very important. But don't rely on just that for your own personal growth. That's also one of the reasons we have organized this uh, think tank we call Coin the Institute on the Internet. So you can do that systematically and yet on your own clock. You don't have to be at a point in time at a particular place. You can do it whenever you want during the week, but you connect with your people by text messaging and you discuss these things and you answer, uh, answer questions about the information you have. It's, a, it's an interactive growth experience. That you, it's volunteer. You can do it whenever you like. But undertake a systematic study of the Word of God. And that should be directed not to intellectual sense of things that should be directed towards a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ himself. That's what it's all about. Not, it's not about what group you belong to. 
It's not how many Bible verses you've memorized. It's do you know him? Do you personally experience him every day? That's what it's all about. Well, that concludes our review of this interesting couple of letters from our Galilean fishermen. It's fascinating to contrast this uh, bumbling Galilean fisherman, uneducated, who always seemed to be saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, and yet, after he gains the Holy Spirit, has these incredibly gifted sermons in Acts chapter 2, and his second sermon in Acts chapter 3, and then these incredibly crafted letters from our friend Peter. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to meeting him. He's going to be one of probably one of the most colorful characters up there. And it should be a delightful time. When, and when you meet him, you'll say, hey, I read your book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful, this colorful friend, Peter. We thank you, Father, for his stumblings as well as his successes. We thank you, Father, for his words that you've inspired. We thank you, Father, for this incredible, very human friend. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. But above all, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've gone to such extremes that we might live. We thank you, Father, that you have a destiny for us that will transcend the coming conflagration that is destined upon the planet Earth. We just thank you, Father, and look forward to what you have for us. Help us each to grow in grace in the knowledge of our coming King, that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities before us, that we might be more, might be more pleasing in your sight as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservations whatsoever. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>